0: Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is Primetime Politics, the Vote 2019 edition. It is day 13 of the campaign, four weeks now until voting day. On the Hustings today, the focus was on health care and housing. Candidates will be here to debate the latest promises. We have new polling numbers that include how Canadians feel about the blackface controversy that is still dogging the Prime Minister. You'll be interested to see how Canadians feel about all of that and what it might mean at the ballot box. And a young climate campaigner blasts world leaders and is set to make her mark in Canada. All of that coming up. But first, as always, our Day 13 campaign primer. At a campaign stop in Hamilton, Ontario, the Liberal leader focused on health care with a pledge that a re-elected Liberal government would ensure every Canadian has a family doctor, would set a national standard for access to mental health services and introduce a national pharmacare plan. But the announcement is thin on details. We are announcing today a $6 billion
1: down payment over the next three years on implementation of national pharmacare on uh, making sure that more Canadians, that all Canadians have access to a family doctor or a healthcare team, and uh, get better access to mental health services that we recognize are an essential part
0: of healthcare right now. Justin Trudeau says the Liberal Pharmacare plan would follow the recommendations of his advisory council, which recommended a universal, single-payer public pharmacare system. But Trudeau noted that any healthcare changes will require negotiations with the provinces. And on that score, Justin Trudeau repeatedly invoked the name of Ontario Premier Doug Ford some 15 times. Who
1: do you want negotiating with Doug Ford when it comes to the future of your healthcare? Who do you want negotiating? With Doug Ford. Who do you want negotiating with Doug Ford on the future of your health care?
0: The Ontario Premier's office notes the provincial budget has boosted health care in Ontario by over a billion dollars this year. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer also campaigned in Ontario today. He's promising to increase transfers to the provinces for health and education by 3% and Scheer was quick to respond to Trudeau's repeated efforts to link him with Doug Ford. He had some comparisons of his own.
2: The real question is what's the difference between Kathleen Wynne and Justin Trudeau? Uh, The very same people who are the architects of the failed Kathleen Wynne, Delta McGuinty government that raised taxes, ran massive deficits, mired in scandal and corruptions are now working for Justin Trudeau and they're following the same playbook. So Voters in Ontario know that they can limit the damage from Justin Trudeau to one term and they can elect a Conservative government that will lower taxes, protect our public institutions and our public programs like health care and education and make life more affordable so they can get ahead.
0: Andrew Scheer announced a Conservative government would introduce a four-point plan to make the purchase of a first home more affordable. That includes changes to the mortgage stress test, which can disqualify first-time home buyers with a down payment of 20% or more if the bank decides they could not afford their mortgage principal and interest payments if interest rates increase. Shear is also promising to raise the maximum amortization period for first time home buyers with insured mortgages from 25 to 30 years to lower their monthly payments.
2: In the last few years, the percentage of Canadians who are using unregulated private lenders uh, has gone from six percent to ten percent, and that means that they're often paying much higher interest rates because they're unable to get mortgages through traditional banking s- systems. So clearly, there are some unintended negative consequences that we want to address uh, with this review of the t- of the stress test. See
3: where you are. There you go. One, two, and three.
0: NDP leader Jagmeet Singh campaigned for a few hours today in New Brunswick before moving on to campaign stops in Nova Scotia. In Bathurst, New Brunswick, he introduced the last of the NDP's 12 candidates in New Brunswick, Daniel Terrio, a provincial champion for Francophone and Acadian rights. Singh promised to strengthen French language rights and he also talked up his promises of universal pharmacare and dental care for lower-income families.
3: These steps are going to take off a lot of pressure on the already stretched uh, services in the province. It's going to take a lot of the weight off the shoulders of the provincial system. We know that many people don't take the medication they need and they end up in the emergency room because they're so unhealthy. Uh, we can prevent that. We can prevent that providing, by providing access to medication. By providing access to dental care, it will improve health outcomes. This is going to free up resources to reduce wait times. It's going to boost access to doctors, and it's going to improve long-term and home care. Uh, We are proud uh, of our plan because it's going to help us work with provinces to put in place national standards to improve the quality of long-term care and home care so that when you need this care, when when your loved one needs this care, you don't have to worry about it.
0: This is Jagmeet Uh, Singh's first visit to New Brunswick since becoming leader two years ago. And he's been criticized for ignoring the province. What did he have to say today?
3: I'm really sorry. Uh, I'm sorry that I didn't get here earlier. Uh, I'm happy to be here. I'm honored to be here. Uh, It's a beautiful place. I want to be friends with you too, though, okay? And that's the kind of day it's been. Day 13 (laughs) of the election campaign. Where's your mom? Is she working today? We'll see her later on.
0: Well, there were more questions for the Liberal leader today about his wearing of blackface, the controversy over those images and video of Justin Trudeau in brownface and blackface in 2001 and before. It continues to dog Justin Trudeau on the campaign trail. Specific questions about that video when he was a rafting guide in Quebec.
4: Prime Minister, going back to the video that was obtained by Global News, you mentioned last week that it was during a... Uh, rafting, uh, during your time at, at the Whitewater Rafting Expedition, and it was a costume day. What exactly was that costume?
1: I am uh, continuing to be open with Canadians about uh, the mistake I made. Uh, this is something that I take responsibility for. This is something uh, that I should have known better uh, but didn't. And I will continue to work every day to fight racism, to fight discrimination, to fight intolerance in this country.
4: That wasn't even close to answering the question. What was that costume? Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, I have been open with Canadians. I will continue to be open with Canadians. Uh, I will continue to fight racism and intolerance uh, every day. I take responsibility for the terrible mistakes I made in the past uh, and uh, commit to continue to fight against racism and intolerance every day.
0: And another voice weighing in on the controversy today, this time out west, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney uh, weighing in on the blackface controversy. Here's what he had to say.
5: I found the revelations about the Prime Minister's uh, penchant for blackface frankly bizarre. He is trying to blame this on society, that we must learn from this. No, Prime Minister, this is about you, not us. I'm 51 years old, I have hardly lived a sheltered existence and I've never seen anybody ever do that, insulting racial mockery. I don't know why he's trying to blame society, this is classic, this is typical of him.
0: So the questions kept coming today and in some cases criticism for Liberal leader Justin Trudeau over his wearing of blackface and today we have some polling numbers that give us some sense of how this story is playing out with the Canadian people. David Coletto is the CEO of Abacus Data and he's with me now. David good to see you again. Always uh, a pleasure to have you on the program. So this dominated the campaign last week. It hasn't gone away. We're sti- still still uh, seeing and hearing questions about it and we're going to get into sort of how that's playing right. out with the with the people you've surveyed but let's start with the context for these numbers what do we need to know before we start so
4: we did this survey entirely after uh the photos and the video came out on wednesday and thursday we interviewed 29 canadians representative sample and we finished it actually sunday morning yesterday morning uh, so we've got a good large sample completely done after the events and so we can now see what damage, if any, has it done to the Liberals, and who's benefited, if any, from that
0: damage? All right, so we're going to go we're going to go through these numbers in terms of uh, the sort of horse race issue, then the kind of impressions of leaders and what's changing or, or what's not changing, and then you know how this is resonating with with voters and voting groups. So let's start with the national race. What's happening?
4: Yeah, the, not much actually. Our last survey was done just before the campaign started, and so stuff may have happened in between, but we're at a point today. That was where we found the race, and a lot of other polls, frankly, are finding the race, which is a statistical tie between the Conservatives and the Liberals nationally. Thirty-four for the uh, Conservatives, 32 for the Liberals, 15 for the NDP, 10 for the Greens. In Quebec, uh, when we look at some of the regional numbers, uh, the Bloc is at 18, uh, but the Liberals still holding uh, a sizable lead over the Conservatives. Uh, Not surprising, the Conservatives doing well in the Prairies, uh, doing well in in Saskatchewan and Alberta in particular. But all eyes on Ontario, all eyes on BC, two very competitive uh, provinces right now with the Liberals slightly ahead in Ontario, and we've, we're getting an exact deadlock tie in British Columbia. So, so the race at the national level looks very close. It's more or less where it's been in our polling for the last few months. But underneath it, it still points to perhaps an advantage for the Liberals because of the way some of these votes might
0: be splitting. So in, in the what in the five or six days now since the whole blackface controversy has blown up, we don't really see a whole lot of movement because of it in the polls, right? Not
4: in the horse race yeah. polls. We'll get to some of the others. And horse race is usually the last thing that moves, one of those lagging indicators. Right. But as of right now, there's, there's very few Canadians out there who said they would have voted Liberal, let's say, at the start of this campaign, who now say I'm not voting Liberal because of this
0: and other things that have happened in the campaign. So when you look at the horse race and voting intentions talk to me about age. Well How age is an important one, right? We, we, yeah.
4: We're going to talk more about younger voters in a minute because there's some talk that maybe they're the most sensitive to, to, to these events um, but we've seen little change, right? The The Conservatives do best among older Canadians. They do less well among younger Canadians. The NDP and the Greens get a larger share of that 18 to 29 vote which has been the case. This is not a new phenomenon and you can see really Quite remarkably, the Liberal vote is pretty consistent across all age groups. This looks very similar um, to what we saw earlier. Um, It's a a challenging kind of environment for the Liberals, in part because one of the big questions of this campaign remains, will younger voters come out in the same way they did in 2015? The Liberals, based on these numbers, need them to do that because the Conservatives uh, are, are leading among that more reliable Older, uh, older demographic. All
0: right, let's go to the impression of the leaders and what people are saying uh, in your survey about uh, Justin Trudeau and others. Let's start with Justin Trudeau. Yeah, what and do here you see? we
4: have seen some movement
0: um, that's outside the margin of error. So, w-
4: compared to the start of the campaign, Mr. Trudeau's positive numbers are down four points to thirty-one points. That's the lowest we've actually tracked him um, since he's become prime minister. Mm-hmm. So it is a, a low point. Um, you can go back to sort of the worst of the SNC controversy. Um, and, and that's a similar, and his negatives are up to 49%. So there, there seems to be um, whether it's, and, I, and I, I'm going to assume it's this blackface photos right. that have done this, um, that have, have, have really weakened uh, his numbers. Not, not decimated them, but they're trending down and we'll have to see whether they
0: continue. So um, you wonder about advantages for other leaders when that kind of thing starts to happen. Okay, yeah. so uh, let's talk about that. What, what, this is a place where maybe Andrew Scheer could benefit from this. Is he? He's not. Um, his,
4: his positives are also down three points. His negatives only up one. Um, so, so this hasn't had any sort of halo effect in pushing either Mr. Scheer's numbers up, or if we talk about the NDP leader... Uh, Jugmeet Singh, same thing. He, I think, my my not pollster head,
0: right uh, commentator head. I think he's had a good week and a half of this campaign. But he's gotten lots of lots, lots of lots of positive press for, yeah. in particular, his reaction to the whole blackface controversy. Right. But what's happening? But his numbers haven't, his negatives haven't gone up, but his
4: positives went down, which means, you know, people. Uh, there are moments in the campaign where people pay attention. We'll see whether there's a legacy of this this event that helps Jugmeet Singh. But right now people haven't really responded overly positive. They're not responding negatively, but it hasn't really given him a boost in his numbers. And
0: I think this next one is really interesting too. Elizabeth yeah. May, who was kind of on this upward trajectory. Yeah. Oops, <laughs> back down to back earth a little down, bit. Back down, back down. And that means
4: people are f- going back into the middle. They're saying, I no longer feel ready to say she, I've got a positive or negative view of her, although her negatives are up a little bit. Uh, it's more people back in the in, in the middle. And I think... Your next question is going to tie why this might be the case, right? Why is it that these, this massive event, this is a, a huge shock right. to to the election, hasn't really moved too many of these numbers? Well, when we ask people, how closely are you actually
0: following the campaign? You have to yeah, you have to be paying attention out there to form some sort of kind of opinion, right? And so yeah. if you're not paying attention, and what do we see? Well, we find that while most Canadians are
4: saying they're following the campaign so far very closely or pretty closely, a sizable number. On the other side, say, either not at all or a little bit, right? Yeah, um, and um, so, almost half
0: are saying that, yeah, So exactly. almost
4: two weeks into this campaign, after even after what was a moment, a moment in which the rest, and I'll show you in a minute, most of the country we're aware of, there's still a lot of Canadians who aren't fully tuning in. Now, not all Canadians will tune into this election. We know that, you know, if we're lucky, 70% of Canadians will actually cast a ballot. But still, this is a, this is a high number... Um, not at this necessarily stage of the campaign, but by the end of the campaign, we will see that the tension increase as we go forward.
0: Let's talk about uh, which party will form government. and, and this is their thoughts on, on where the election might be headed and who will win. What do we see?
4: Yeah, we actually see as, as much as the, the horse race is tight, so is the predicted horse race, right? Uh, 41% of people think the Conservatives are going to win this election, 40% think the Liberals, and then all the other parties are, are down very low in single digits. This, to me, is so important to understanding what impact, you know, the blackface photos might have. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, as I'll show you in a minute, you know, certain voters reacted quite negatively to those comments, but they weren't who we might have assumed would have. They were actually more conservative-oriented voters. On the flip side, if you're a more progressive-oriented voter, on the one hand, you may may be disappointed. But if you think the conservatives have a chance of winning this election, that is going to have an impact Ultimately, on what choice you make, and that is the—that's the calculus I think right. going through a lot of people's minds.
0: So uh, let's look at that. So, so you you see that number, then you 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 ask, you know, how how is your mind made up basically? Yeah. How how firm is your choice? What, what do you see? Well, almost
4: two thirds of Canadians say their, their their choice is made up, and when you look at how they're going to vote, it looks similar to the national numbers. About thirty-six percent would vote Conservative, thirty-two uh, Liberals, thirteen—much a little bit lower for the New Democrats. But one out of three voters also say, "I am not." made up my mind. And that includes people who may not vote, but that's a sizable group of people who, you know, can shift. And if we consider that the election is incredibly close, one or two points movement might be the difference between the Liberals or the Conservatives winning a minority, winning the most seats, mm. maybe winning a majority government. So being so close means everything can have a big impact.
0: Okay. Uh, now let's drill down a little bit on sort of these findings around the whole blackface story. Yeah. Um, what do you see when you, you talk to Canadians, on you, know, you, you canvass them on the issue of awareness? Does everybody know about this story? Almost everybody, right? And, and awareness
4: creeped up over the course of the days that we did this survey, to the point where now half of Canadians say they're following this story closely or they've heard a lot about it. Uh, 34% say they've heard at least something about it, and 12% admit, I haven't heard about it, right? And that's not surprising. And in fact, when we compare it to other Public affairs stories that often come out of Ottawa or are related to Canadian politics. This is significant. This, within a very short period of time, spread quickly. People became aware of it, and so it's on people's radar. No doubt about that. And uh, what, talk to me about reaction. About those, those are paying attention. What do they, what do they say? Well, if if you, you know, this is the this is the difference. It's always interesting as a pollster because you see how the media and Twitter reacts, and then you expect to see the same kind of reaction from the public, but that's not always the case, and that's not the case here. Right. 24% of Canadians were offended by this, uh, and they say that their view of Mr. Trudeau has become worse. But everybody else has a, a more has a different view, right? 42%, the largest group say, this didn't bother me really at all. Um, and another 34 say, I didn't like what he did, but I accept his apology and I'm ready to move on. So, you know, the vast majority of the public um, reacted... I think, as we saw in the commentary, uh, as you talk to people, in, in how we saw that, but that 24% and who they are is really important. And it's interesting, most of that 24%, as I said earlier, are not liberal voters, are not progressive voters, even. They're more conservative voters. And so, as this is the conservatives who say, aha, right, here's Justin Trudeau being a hypocrite, and they were the ones who neg- reacted the most negatively in terms of its impact on politics. Probably less important right. because they weren't going to vote for him in the first place. Okay, and
0: what about how it might impact uh, their decisions at the ballot box? Well, this is where, again, we see the same kind of
4: numbers. 40% say they weren't voting Liberal anyways, so it doesn't matter. 48% said it won't affect their vote. Other issues will matter. But 12%, not an ins- insignificant mm-hmm. number. Especially
0: though. in a race, if it's this close. Exactly. 12% I'm, not, I'm not
4: downplaying the potential impact of this. 12% is a lot. Um, right now, a lot of them are staying with the Liberals, but this has caused them to reconsider. And when we look at you know, how they might reconsider, whether they'd reconsider or not, and who they would prefer to be the prime minister, who, which, gover- which party they'd prefer to win between the Liberals or the Conservatives, right. that middle group is much more split, which means, again, the potential impact of this. If, if it swings slightly one way or the other over the next few days, that could be, that could be the difference if no other campaign event between now and Election Day gets
0: people, uh, uh, gets people to people. Right, reconsider. so on, that li- on last, our last board here, 77 percent, uh, so walk us. Th- so let me walk you through yeah, this. Yeah, so exactly among those what do who these say
4: they um, would not vote, th- like the reaction to this event is, I'm not going to vote Liberal anyway, so it doesn't matter. Most of them would prefer the Conservatives to win this election, right. as opposed to the Liberal. We're forcing a choice here. On the other end, among those who say this won't affect my vote, other things matter. Most of them say I would prefer the Liberals over the Conservatives, right? So it shows that that sort of uh, those are the polls. But in the middle, that small group of 12. percent when we ask them, who would you rather win this election? Which, if you think of strategic voting and the, sort of the, comp, the, the complexity of the choice a lot of voters are making, it's almost split down the middle, leans to the, to the liberals there. So, so this tells us, one, there doesn't appear to be a lot of movement in the early days after this, this event. Two, people are well aware of it, um, so it's not something that's going to still take time to, to sort of seep down into public consciousness. But three because the election so close one or two points if, if, if this becomes the thing that, that causes some liberals to stay home or not vote liberal it could be uh, it could be the thing
0: that stops the liberals from getting real right and I guess the thing to watch for in, in that context is okay well uh, you know and this is a lot of the questions we're hearing you know are but okay is, is this it or could there be something else so you have people who say they've kind of come to a place in the road where they've made their decision, they've seen it, they're ready to move on, because he says he's ready to move on. But if there's something else, uh, it'll be interesting to see whether, okay, wait a minute, there's a a new appraisal uh, in the voter pool for that, right? All right, David Coletto, always good to get the background on the numbers, what they mean, good to talk to you. Pleasure, Peter.
1: To have the same doctor or nurse practitioner to do your yearly checkup and monitor your health over time can help prevent illness. They make sure you've received all your shots and conduct routine tests, so if something's not right, you can get the right treatment right away. And if you have a family physician, you may not need to spend as much time in the ER, which in turn reduces wait times. To do this, we will start with an investment of $6 billion over the next four years
3: to support a stronger Medicare system and public health care. People tell me all the time, many seniors can't afford the medication they need. It costs a lot. Even those with some coverage still don't get the medication that they need because it costs so much with the copayments and deductibles. So what we're saying is our universal pharmacare plan would mean that seniors could go into the pharmacy and use their health card, not their credit card, to get all the medical devices, and medication they need. It's a bold plan, it's achievable, and we've mapped it out, so that would help seniors significantly.
2: For our first-time homebuyers, we will increase maximum amortization periods on insured mortgages to 30 years. Longer amortization periods mean lower mortgage payments and put put, put more money saved to be put towards student debt, family, monthly bills, and retirement.
0: So, the campaign day dominated today by promises on pharmacare and housing. It is all really about affordability when you come right down to it. Let's bring in the candidates to talk about party promises. John Broussard is the Conservative candidate for re-election in the Ontario riding of Barry innisville Anita Anand is the Liberal candidate in Oakville, a seat that was held by the Liberals at dissolution. But the former MP, John Oliver, is not seeking re-election. And Angela McEwen is the NDP candidate in Ottawa-West Nepean. Good to see you all, candidates. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Great. Peter. Uh, let's begin with the party promises on PharmaCare and Anita Ananda, if I can, I'll start with you. Your leader today announced a, uh, $6 billion to improve health care with promised access for every Canadian to a family doctor, mental health services and prescription drugs, uh, taking critical next steps toward a national PharmaCare program. So to be clear, is the Liberal Party promising Canadians a universal, publicly pay- paid plan to provide every Canadian with prescription drugs?
6: listen this this announcement begins with a very important point that no one should have to make the choice about whether to put on the table or whether to afford necessary prescription drugs and that's what our leader started with this morning when we were at the announcement and it's a promise that is building on a lot of work that we've done over the past few years. In 2015, we worked hard to close the gaps in mental health, in home care, and to start the work necessary to achieve a truly universal Pharmacare plan. We've got the record to show that we've been committed to this, and it was mentioned in the budget of 2019. You'll recall. Right. So, so what,
0: what I'm asking today is, it wasn't clear this morning from the announcement whether the Liberal Party is saying this will be a fully funded, public, universal pharmacare plan uh, when it finally rolls out, whenever that is, because there was no timeline attached to it or cost attached to it. So, is that what it's going to be?
6: It's going to be, you'll, you're right, the words that were used were Universal National Pharmacare Program. And the idea is that everyone should have access to it and that this, the details need to be ironed out because it's going to be a plan between the federal government and the provinces. And so you'll recall from this morning's announcement that the federal government will work with the provinces as it has effectively done so in the past to deliver a pharmacare program for Canadians. Okay, I want to
0: come back to that. Mr. Broussard, let me go to you. Uh, what, what's, what, what is the Conservative Party offering when it comes to pharmacare? What's your position?
5: Well, um, Andrew uh, has made it very clear that uh, pharmacare is an expensive proposition uh, and that it will be awfully difficult to uh, implement. Uh, and it's clearly evident this morning by Justin Trudeau's announcement uh, when he talked about investing six billion dollars over the next four years, there's a you know you'll have to excuse uh, any Canadian for being cynical on the Liberal pharmacare plan because Peter uh, you know he talked about six billion dollars this morning. Eric Hoskins' own report uh, that he did on a national pharmacare program spoke of fifteen dollar or fifteen billion dollar right. per year cost, and uh, the Parliamentary Budget Officer said that it would be twenty four billion dollars. So. Uh, on the costing issue, they haven't even come out with uh, the right figures of what the actual PharmaCare program would cost. And we all know that uh, Canadians are going to pay for this, and they're going to pay for it dearly to the tune of $2,000 for a family of four. So taxes are certainly going to go up okay. to uh, implement the type of plan that Justin Trudeau was right, talking right, about.
0: So to be clear, the, the Conservatives, and I think I've heard this from you before, the Conservatives are not at this point interested in a, a publicly funded universal PharmaCare plan.
5: That's uh, we haven't even uh, begin to uh, talk about that Andrew uh, in recent interviews have talked has talked about uh, PharmaCare and uh, and the feel that it would be best left in the hands of uh, private health care plans, including those employer plans, which could be a threat uh, based on the plan that Justin Trudeau is announcing this morning. Okay,
0: Angela McKeown, uh the NDP has got a proposal. Uh, tell me about that and tell me how that stacks up with what you heard from Justin Trudeau today.
7: So the NDP's proposal is that the federal government will put $10 billion a year into Pharmacare and that the provinces would continue to put the same amount of funding into Pharmacare as they are mm-hmm. right now. Um, and so that is more in one year than than uh, Mr. Trudeau promised this morning over four years.
0: And, and your pl- your plan, uh, I think the NDP's plan would kick in after year one in government. and would yeah. be... I mean, universe, universal, universal, one single plan for all Canadians. A single so. plan.
7: And that's the only way, actually, that you end up saving money in the long run, if you have this single universal plan. Uh, that the provinces then end up saving money in the long run. Uh, The parliamentary budget officer analyzed our proposal. It would save $4 billion a year, Canadians would. And it's businesses that are right now paying about $8,000 per person to insure their employees, and it's families that would save about $500 uh, a year
6: on prescriptions.
0: Go go ahead, go ahead.
6: Yeah, I, I just want to make one point that... Pharmacare is not something that can simply be implemented easily by the federal government. We live in a constitutional democracy with a division of powers between federal and provincial governments. As Justin Trudeau said this morning, this is a Plan that needs to be done in conjunction with the provinces. And that's why we are proposing to go forward with the provinces as opposed to a top down approach. Right. And very, our very position in- is.
7: It's gonna, oh, it's go go ahead, awful,
5: John Bersard, and then go, go ahead, uh, Angela, It's going to be awfully difficult to negotiate with the provinces and premiers when uh, Justin Trudeau is running around. Uh, basically insulting them everywhere he goes and every campaign promise and every campaign uh, initiative that he makes. You you talk about a a top-down approach. If you want to negotiate with the premiers, you better have a good relationship with the premiers. And Justin Trudeau is uh, fracturing many of those relationships as he he skips across the country making these announcements and insulting premiers at the same time.
6: Go ahead, Angela. Well, let's just...
0: Hang on, Anita. I'm going to come back to you. Go ahead.
7: Provinces are actually struggling right now. They're stretched... Um, trying to deliver health care and education, and they're looking for a willing partner in the federal government. They haven't had a willing partner since John Cretchen slashed and burned and cut transfers to the provinces. So what the NDP is promising to do is—it's is, going to be hard, but it's worth doing. It's going to say the provinces are looking for a willing partner to work with them. It will save them money in the long run. We're put, bringing money to the table um, to get it going, and I think that. Um, okay that when they have that willing partner and when the funding is there on the table, uh, that it just makes sense. Because if you have Canadians right now are going without medication and they're ending up sicker in the long run.
0: Okay, let, let's hear from Anita uh, Go ahead, Anita and In the context of Justin Trudeau mentioned uh, Doug Ford 15 times in the announcement today and said to people, if you want improvements in health care, don't, don't vote for Andrew Scheer because he won't be able to stand up to, to Doug Ford. I'm the guy that can stand up to Doug Ford. Uh, what was the purpose of, of that kind of, of rhetoric if you're trying to find a partner at the provincial level?
6: It's actually not rhetoric. If it is the case that we would elect a Conservative government, the point that was being made this morning was that Canadians would be faced with cuts and more cuts. And that is not the approach that fulfills the promises and the lives of Canadian citizens. I also want to point out that it wasn't just about pharmacare this morning. It was also about ensuring access to family doctors and improving services regarding mental health. Remember the Canada Health Act was enacted in the 1980s. It's outdated and needs to be um, updated to take into account issues like Mental health, and so the announcement this morning really had three prongs, not just one prong, relating to pharmacare. It also focused on family doctors okay. and mental health, and Ms. that because of the importance right, of these services for Canadians.
0: John Brassard, I want to move to you now. I want to talk the other. The Conservatives—they were talking about housing talking about uh, reviewing the stress test for, for uh, first-time homeowners and also for extending the mortgage amortization period uh, an additional five years to 30 years. Um, is the plan to eliminate the stress test? Because uh, a lot of people worry that that will drive up household debt and put some homeowners in a precarious position. So reviewing it means what? A view to eliminating it?
5: Well, it's, it's a view to uh, making sure that the stress test is applicable across the country and is relevant in certain areas across the country as well. We all know that the stress test was implemented uh, to curb some of the housing concerns that were going on in Vancouver and Montreal, but it, it did have a cascading effect across the country. And we heard from industry, we heard from realtors, we heard from home builders uh, that the stress test was, wasn't it was necessarily applicable in certain markets where there wasn't uh, the type of housing affordability issue uh, that existed in vancouver but peter i do want to go back to one thing and i have to uh, hang
0: on just just let me be clear on this though so the the the, the idea would be to review to review it but you're hoping uh that that you'd eliminate it in what in many markets but not in some others
5: well it could that could be a possibility uh peter that uh, the stress test could be eliminated in some markets or it could be adjusted in some markets we haven't got to that point But again, getting back to the point I made earlier, is that this is something that we've heard from industry, we've heard from the home builders, we've heard from the realtors, that there needs to be a review of the stress test, as well as a 30-year amortization of mortgage brought back in order to uh, increase affordability issues for young people. Because during the course of this election, the housing affordability issue is an important issue for many, many young people and many Canadians as well.
0: All right. Anita Anand, the Liberal... Uh, party platform. Uh, what we see so far also has uh, housing affordability issues in it. It's, it's, it's uh, largely the, the program is to uh, allow people to take out an equity loan uh, through Central Mortgage and Housing Corporation and then pay back uh, at the end of that uh, when they sell their house. So what, what about this proposal from Conservatives to, uh, to look at possibly removing the stress test and extending a mortgage amortization, uh, the period, to 30 years from 25?
6: Well, listen, we have to remember that Canadians do not need further risks and instability in our housing market. That's exactly what today's uh, proposal from Andrew Scheer would occasion. We have to remember that Jim Flaherty, a Conservative finance minister, himself reduced the maximum amortization period. To 25 years from 30 years, so I have a question as to why now uh, Shear is proposing to extend it again to 30 years, and in my mind, that's going to add more debt and more instability in our housing market, and something Canadians don't need after the financial crisis of 2008. All right, let me, and
0: where- let me hear from Angela McEwen on that.
7: Yeah, that sounds like something that would help industry, but it wouldn't necessarily help home buyers uh, Because it's just allowing you to pay more on your mortgage over a longer period of time, right? So
0: It lowers your monthly payments in theory. It lowers That's your the monthly theory.
7: payments, but it increases your total payments, right? So if you pay your mortgage right. over 20 years, you pay less in interest than if you pay it over 30 years.
5: So not a good idea. Peter. Generally. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Very quickly, Mr. Broussard. Peter, we're also talking about first-time home buyers who are at the greatest advantage of their earning years to be able to pay and invest into their homes by way of a mortgage. So uh, this is not about uh, you know fifty-five-year-old people like myself getting thirty-year amortization. This is about first-time home buyers, and I'll, I'll say this again: it is the number one issue among young people—housing affordability. Right. So. If industry is telling us that this is, this will work, if uh, young people are telling us that this is what they want, then that's precisely what this policy has given to young Canadians yeah, the opportunity to, to okay, buy. Okay, let's. Into I, I, it's going to
7: drive prices up. Is what it's going to do. It, it. We need to increase the stock of mid size affordable housing we need to yeah. increase the affordability of rental housing we actually need to increase the supply it, this does nothing it, to do that
0: it's a big issue and we could spend a lot more time on it but i'm, I'm sorry our our our, our 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 time yeah. no our t- sorry our time is done I'm, I'm sorry we're out of time for today but thank you all Thanks. and we'll talk again take care thank,
7: thank you thank you
0: bye now Climate change is about to occupy a bigger space in this campaign. This coming Friday, 100 climate strikes are planned across Canada to call on world leaders to take urgent action to deal with climate change. Sixteen-year-old Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg will be at the big demonstration Friday in Montreal. The protests coincide with a gathering of world leaders this week of the, at the United Nations in New York, and she's there for that. It's all about pumping up new momentum into the stalled effort to curb emissions. And today Thunberg spoke at the UN Climate Summit and blasted world leaders in an emotional condemnation of their lack of action.
6: My message is that we'll be watching you.
0: this is all wrong I shouldn't be up here I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean yet you all come to us young people for hope how dare you Well Dale Marshall is the National Climate Program Manager for Environmental Defense here in Canada. We have reached him at the climate summit in New York. Uh, Dale Marshall good to see you again thanks for taking time to speak with me.
8: Good to talk to
0: you. Uh, We saw this very emotional condemnation of world leaders by teenage activist uh, Greta Thunberg today accusing them of betraying young people of stealing her dreams and her childhood. What effect do you think that message will have?
8: Um, Well I I hope it has a strong impact Um, it certainly made me quite emotional to hear her pleading um, with the world to do something Um, saying essentially don't give me your hope don't don't applaud me because I'm here Um, we need action uh, and we need strong action now and uh, essentially saying the truth which is that uh, it's her generation that's going to be suffering from um, our inaction. If we continue to not take this seriously, this, the, the problem of climate change, that
0: is. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess, the, the, she, obviously, very blunt spoken. Uh, not typically what you hear at the United Nations. They're all pretty mm-hmm. easy on each other. Uh, did you do you get a sense at all that this this could be a a pivotal moment? How, how much weight is she carrying in this conversation?
8: Well, I mean, I think she she has um she's pointing people uh towards the moral imperative to act um uh, you know to protect species to protect her future um and if that doesn't have an impact on people who are decision makers who are actually able to do the things that are needed in terms of reducing emissions and dealing in a real way with um the problem that we have that we confront ourselves with that we're confronted with, which is an existential crisis, especially for her generation. Um, if those pleas don't um, have any impact, then, you know, <laughs> it's, it's hard to believe. I, 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 think, I think it will propel action amongst a lot of people who, um, who are thinking about this issue uh, and, and are in, in positions of making decisions.
0: Yeah, and so, so much of these decisions are based on pressure from the public, right? So uh, if people find a connection to her and the message, then you get this, this ground-up push uh, to the political leaders. But l- let's go back to the goal of this UN Climate Summit. What was it called for? What's it supposed to achieve?
8: Well, it was the Secretary General of the UN who wanted to have greater momentum um, towards next year where countries are expected to increase, um, their climate action, to commit to more action, to commit to greater emission reductions, um, it was always going to be piecemeal because it's only like, countries that wanted to make new announcements were the only ones who were going to be given the stage. Right. So it's not, it's, it's not, it wasn't intended to be every country stepping forward together. Um, but this, over the course of the next year now, uh, will hopefully establish some momentum towards uh, a, a every country deciding that they're going to do more to to fight climate action.
0: So did any have any country stepped up?
8: Yeah, I mean, we've we've seen a, a number of announcements that were um, pretty interesting. Um, you know fin the the Finnish Prime Minister came and said that, Finland will be carbon neutral by uh, 2033, Um, so, you know, that's barely a decade away. Uh, It's it's a huge announcement. Um, Small island developing states, this is dozens of small island states in the Caribbean and in the South Pacific have all said that um, they want to be at 100% um, renewable energy by 2030, so to have no fossil fuels uh, be powering their economies. You know, and these these are poor countries, but they're also at the forefront of climate change, which is why you see them stepping up and taking um, strong action.
0: Okay, I want to get to the Canadian uh, uh, conversation in a moment, but just on one last thing on on today. Uh, the U.S. President Donald Trump popped into the summit, uh, I see, where it was for about 14 minutes. Uh, what do you make of his presence there when, when he wasn't expected to show up at all, and he's uh, he's viewed in a lot of circles as someone who's a, a climate denier, but he popped in today. Do you wonder why?
8: I think he was facing a lot of criticism for not even showing up. And so, I guess to appease um, the people who were, have been criticizing him, he feels like it makes a difference for him to be to sit down and for, for 15 minutes and, and hear a, a couple of speeches. Um, I mean, obviously, what we need more than anything from President Trump is, is greater action from, from the U.S. Um, he's been rolling back uh, regulations in the U.S., whether it has to do with methane emissions from oil and gas or, um, or, or vehicle standards uh, and for, for efficiency and, and carbon emissions. So he's been trying to roll stuff back and, and actually facing a lot of opposition from the states from and even from companies. Um, but that's that's what he needs to do more than anything. Whether he's in his chair for 15 minutes or 15 hours um, doesn't really matter that much. It's clearly just a tokenistic um, uh, kind of action
0: today. Okay, our prime minister isn't there because we're in the middle of an election campaign in this country. but. Um, Given the guidelines that the Secretary General set, only come to the, you're not gonna get a chance to come to the microphone unless you got a new plan and you're willing to sort of up your game. So Canada's not there because of the election, but would we have been invited to the microphone uh, even if we were there?
8: Well, we would have, Canada would have had to be ready to increase uh, its climate action to make greater commitments in the future. We're still expecting that for next year. There are now um, 65 countries and counting who have said that they're going to increase the pledge that they have under the Paris Agreement um, to take greater action on climate change. Uh, I'm hopeful that no matter who the the government is next year that we will do that, that we will decide to take greater action, make greater commitments in terms of both carbon reductions as well as assisting poor countries to help them address climate change.
0: How should uh, what happens this week in New York, and we have climate strikes in Canadian cities coming up at the end of the week on Friday. What is the message to political leaders in this country facing questions about this on the campaign trail right now?
8: Well, I mean, it's clear there's a public appetite
0: for for
8: greater action from citizens. Um, you know, four million people in 100-plus 100, 100 countries were in the streets on Friday, and we're going to see a very big display um, similar in Canada with uh, with uh, dozens of cities across the country who are going to have climate strike marches. And so I think that the message is very clear that, uh, you know, and we've seen in terms of the discussion in this election, citizens want action and, and they're seeing it in much more urgent terms than they have in a while. Maybe that's because of the impacts, the wildfires, the floods, maybe it's because of the new science. But citizens really Canadian citizens want to see action and so any party that wants to form government uh, and and lead Canada over the next four years better be ready to um to to step into that role of being a greater climate leader
0: okay Dale Marshall national climate program manager for environmental defense in Canada joining us from the climate summit in New York today uh thanks for your time appreciate it thank you I'm joined now by three colleagues from the Parliamentary Press Gallery to talk about the news of the day and other things. Maura Forrest is a political reporter with the National Post. Joël Denis Balavance is the Parliamentary Bureau Chief for La Presse. And Alex Boudelier is a national politics reporter with the Toronto Star. Good to see you all. One month to go. (laughs) (laughs) Are you pumped by that? Excited by that? Or? whatever
9: like it's been a lot longer than yeah, that, yeah.
10: Right? yeah yeah it's not how many months
0: are we now <laughs> we're <laughs> at month
10: four now okay Alex. that's good yes well, good.
11: I compared to the uh, two 2015 election so we are two more months to go <laughs> yes that's right
0: uh, so no the, there's kinda light at the end of the tunnel so let me talk to you about uh, the pharmacare promise today from Justin Tureaus is everybody clear on what he's offering here well six billion dollars for sure on
11: the table for four years but other than that it's a bit you know unclear how it would work um, except for the fact that the Liberals have been talking about such a program for a while they set up that commission that yeah, came Eric up with that came out with yeah. the recommendations
0: he, yeah. he recommended a single-payer yeah. uh, public plan Which right would with be a more expensive with a small what? co-payment I think and the option to buy outside private insurance if you wanted to supplement that as well but we didn't get into that detail today did we
9: No, I think the big question for the Liberals for a long time now has been will they take that recommendation, will they implement a single-payer universal pharmacare system or will they opt for something that would be cheaper, that would fill in the gaps, provide coverage to those people who don't have it but without replacing all the current private insurance plans that, that exist right now we didn't get any clarity on that today um, you know we've we've heard from the NDP they do want to move forward with a universal pharmacare program um, but by contrast that judo's announcement today was uh, was pretty vague on the details
10: I'm actually less clear on it today than I was when Dr Hoskins <laughs> came out with his recommendations it seemed there's a pretty clear path for the liberals forward from that report um, but today focused a lot a bit a lot about uh, how they're going to implement it with the provinces and you've got hostile premiers in a majority of provinces, hostile to the the current Liberal government. So how those negotiations are actually going to pan out, uh, it's not clear.
11: It was not the details about the uh, promises that was interesting. It was the location where it was made in Ontario. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And And the fight that the uh, Liberals would like to kick-start again, which is a fight between the federal Liberals and Doug Ford, because Doug Ford is very unpopular. In Quebec, there is already a program that is uh, similar to... What the Liberals are eventually proposing to make uh, for Pharmacare. so it has not much resonance in Quebec, but it will have resonance in Ontario if they come up with a proper plan, but also negotiate a plan with uh, Doug Ford.
0: Right. I mean, so uh, I mean, does it? What, what does it leave for the voter here? I mean, there is one party that so far has <laughs> a, a pretty clear offer, uh, notwithstanding costing and whether people like it or not. But the Democrats yep. are saying, you know, we're going to spend. I think it's $20 billion, or right away and within year one, we'll, we'll start a National pharma care plan. What does this do to the conversation? I mean, if you're trying to help voters decide here, have you given them a realistic liberal option to think about here, or you have, you have them going, what is that?
9: I don't, think it really, I don't think this announcement today is really going to help voters who want to know, you know the details of this plan before they decide whether to cast their vote for the Liberals and the NDP, if Pharmacare is a deciding issue for them. I don't think it's provided a lot of clarity, but I think what the Liberals have been able to do for a long time now, by, saying, by making these sort of vague promises about Pharmacare, they are able to take some of the wind out of the NDP's sails. The NDP is saying very clearly what they want to do, but the Liberals are still able to say, yes, we are moving forward on Pharmacare. We're going to provide something. And so for someone who's not sure who thinks Pharmacare is a good idea, but for whom that's not going to be a deciding issue, this at least is maybe enough for them to say, well, the Liberals are going to do something.
10: I think that's exactly right. And I don't think this election is going to turn on the detailed policy proposals around Pharmacare, right? It's going to turn on, do you want it or do you not want it in this particular case? Um, You know, you look at some of the public polling that's out right now, and voters do not seem particularly engaged in this election just yet. So the the idea that anybody would be, you know, sifting uh, through the the Tuesday paper, looking at detailed policy pronouncements on farm care to determine their vote, I think probably not going to happen.
11: What do you
0: think, Judy? It, it looks like more aspirational than in you know, a concrete idea. Yeah, of I the guess when way. I when I look at it, I, I think this, like if you're on the campaign trail, this can be one of those stories unless something changes the channel again tomorrow. Where reporters keep asking, just you know, can you tell us what is the PharmaCare plan you're proposing for Canadians? Because you start to think at some point it's it's going to become this sounds like, uh, this sounds like more delay, more study, more conversation, and maybe we never get a PharmaCare plan. From you guys, so I mean, is there a danger in that? without
11: Yeah, to make it more uh, formalized, I think issue the prime minister will have to promise uh, sort of a first ministers' conference on an issue like that because you need the provinces to be on board on that one, and uh, so that's a, a tricky issue for, for the for the liberal leader, um, and like this will have to be measured also when they release their full platform. Where does it fit in the whole right.
0: scheme? Um, because. The cost yeah, is occurs expo- me, It occurs to me, if you have a First Minister's Conference, I could be wrong, I think memory is certainly correct, doesn't the Premier of Ontario always sit right next to the... <laughs> <laughs> to the so that brings up Doug Ford. Yeah, and it, it kind of felt today like we had a Pharmacare announcement from the Liberals in Ontario so they could talk about Doug Ford.
11: Yeah, and I'll, I'll bring you the example of uh, when Mr. Um, Paul Martin wanted to set up a daycare, a national daycare program. He, he had to bring all the provinces aboard but it, it fell through the minute uh, the um, the other uh, another government was elected. That this was plan was canceled. So there's a lot of work to be done to achieve that. But it it depends on the willingness of the leaders or the governments that yeah. are in power at that time. So it's uh, and to, to be able to force the provinces to uh, convince provinces, they they all have to put a lot of money down the road on that program because it's a very costly uh, program. Mora,
0: what do you think of invoking uh you know, invoking the Doug Ford um, record, the Doug Ford image in Ontario, and having Andrew Scheer respond by invoking Kathleen Wynne. I mean, so it's like Guilt by Association's <laughs> campaign <laughs> happening in Ontario. Uh, who wins that?
9: Well, yeah. I'm not sure who wins it, but I do think that you know the Liberals have been invoking Doug Ford for a long time now. They certainly, I think, believe that to be effective, uh, and, and I think it probably will be effective to some degree. I mean, Doug Ford is not popular in Ontario right. Right, right now. And
0: it's harder to get, it's harder to make that argument. of, Yeah, but what about Kathleen Wynne? Like, we're, we're going back to somebody people didn't like before the guy they don't like now, right? So okay. it's okay. harder.
10: Although people don't like Doug Ford even more than they did <laughs> uh, Kathleen Wynne at the end of her term. You know, it's going to be really interesting to see whether Justin Trudeau or Andrew Scheer ends up at Queens Park after October 21st right yeah because it's an election about pr-
0: provincial politics yes. right let me ask you about the abacus data stuff because the uh, Justin Trudeau was asked about it again today still questions about blackface and he's trying to move on from it obviously uh, the abacus data polling suggests that you know uh, um, people are aware of it it doesn't seem to be for the moment a giant vote mover at, at mm-hmm. this point people largely seem prepared to, to move on from this so uh, how much longer do we hear about this or do you think we're done
11: That's a good question. Uh, uh, I talked to some Liberals in the war room this morning and they were sort of uh, a bit relieved that no more uh, information had been released on this one. And they were also relieved that the polls are indicating a tighter race than uh, they
0: had expected because the the news was pretty... uh, uh-huh. Yeah, they, they, I think they were expecting there the to worst, be a gap yeah, after hit. all yeah, of this, big, and there's a, yeah. you know, it's all seems to be the horse race numbers seem to be within the margin of error, Holy, so still yeah. a tie. Yeah. You know? yeah, still a tie. So it's anybody's guess who can win that election,
11: and now they're putting a lot of their eggs or hopes of on, on the policies that will be released uh, every day up until the debate, and expect or hope that the Liberal leader will be able to perform well to convince voters who are you know undecided or maybe uh, shopping their votes around. Uh, to keep them to the Liberal Party for
0: tomorrow, what do you think?
9: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know, it's a little disconcerting that Justin Trudeau has not been able to say definitively that there aren't any more instances of him uh, dressing up in blackface. So, you know, I think if there is still the possibility that something else comes out, that could obviously be very damaging. But where things are right now, yeah, it doesn't seem to have necessarily moved the needle that much. One point um, in the advocates' data that I thought was interesting was that they, they do th- say that among uh some young people and uh and people of color that you know those groups do seem to have been a bit more affected by this and those are key groups for mm-hmm. the liberals mm-hmm. they do need uh votes from young people and uh from people of color so you know there's still the possibility it's a little early to say what kind right. of impact this could have when it comes to the polls which is still a month away um, but but yeah certainly it is true that it doesn't seem to have had the major impact that i think some That's might have
10: I think I think uh, the Abacus numbers had the Liberals up four points in Ontario and double digits in Quebec. If they're able to m- maintain that gap in those two key provinces, that's the whole election right now. So, so I think there's a lot of good news in that poll for for the Liberals.
0: Quick final comments. Jugmeet Singh was on Tulumonde Al Pal, a, a huge ratings show in Quebec. How did he do? And it was the first uh, show of the season, so that
11: was a major rendezvous for a lot of Quebecers. He did very well. Um, I think people are noticing that he's French, he he masters the the French language and that bodes well for the French debate where he will take part in. He was asked about the secular law in Quebec Mm -hmm. and he said he would not, if he forms the government, he would not, you know, intervene in the courts to try to... Uh, bring, bring it down, fight it in the court. So, he, you know, he was you know trying to woo voters. i uh, I know what your identity is worth. You know, I know that you feel very Didn't strong. think it make a difference with yeah. Quebec voters? Um, I don't know because he was with also at the same time with the Bloc Québécois right. leader, Yves-François Blanchette, and he had the same time on it. So um, we'll see whether. But it, it's not a Jack Le, Jack Layton moment for him. I don't think so.
0: Maury, you watched him too.
9: Yeah, I mean, I had a similar impression. I thought he did very well. You know, I thought he made a couple jokes that landed well. I I think he he seemed comfortable. Uh, He seemed well prepared. Um, Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's not a Jack Layton moment. I don't think we're going to see another orange wave in Quebec this time around. But I thought he did as well as he could have done.
0: Alex, just a, a, a general question of that. I mean, after two weeks of the campaign, is he a, a big surprise for you, Jagmeet Singh?
10: I think he surprised a lot of people. I think he's performed mm-hmm. uh, uh, much better than people expected him to. I think part of that has to do with him being out there on his own terms, on his own turf, deciding what he's going to talk about, rather than facing questions from an unruly pack of journalists in the foyer <laughs> of the House of Commons. So, so I think, I think that, that it's a much better look for him out there among the people, and I think it, it's resonating.
0: All right. Thank you all for your time. Go find someplace to be unruly. <laughs> Thank you.
11: Thank
0: you. And that is all for this edition of Primetime Politics, the vote 2019 edition, right here on CPAC. But stay tuned. Lots more coverage of the election campaign coming up. Straight ahead. Stay with us.